Hello, and welcome to Unsheathed with your hosts, Kyle Gold and Cam Hirosaki. We hope that you enjoy the program. Please stick around afterwards. There'll be cake and blowjobs. Hi, welcome to Unsheathed number 45. I'm Kyle Gold. I'm Cam Hirosaki. And I'm Foosball. Yay, welcome Foosball. Mm-hmm. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Always a pleasure to be here. All the way from Bogoslovenia. <laughs> yes. yes. In the topmost turret of his isolated castle in the wilderness. Yes. <laughs> um, we're here, we brought Foosball on the show because we're going to do an entire show dedicated to editing uh, three paragraphs that one listener sent us. Yes. We're going to talk about the editing process, and hopefully uh, all our listeners will learn a little bit about how we go through and edit and try to make our prose better once we've written down the first draft. Mm. And also just the general concept of being able to look at your own work and how to determine what needs to be changed or adjusted. But first, World, yes. World Cup commiseration. Yes, as the New York Post said over the picture of Landon Donovan, it's a stupid game anyway. <laughs> Who wants to be in the semifinals? Uh, I'm pulling for the two European teams myself. Oh, no, there's three. There's three. I forgot that Spain is Europe, too. It's like an all-Europe yeah. semifinals, almost. Except for Uruguay. I'm kind of pulling for Uruguay. Uh, they, they, they invented soccer, apparently. Yeah, but they the, kind of sound like uh, somebody saying you're a gay. Yes. But Uruguay also crushed Ghana's hopes and dreams with, like, the most bullshit end of a game ever. Yeah, but Ghana crushed our hopes and dreams. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Screw Ghana. <laughs> um, a stupid game, anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, who wants to be in the semifinals, anyway? Well, to start our own soccer league with blackjacks and hookers. <laughs> Well, at least we've always got basketball. <laughs> yes. If no, you, we don't. <laughs> if you can't tell, we're all quite excited to have Futurama back as well. <sighs> yes. Yes, we are. We all, we're all waiting for our iPhones. <laughs> you know, once the installation was done, I think it would actually be pretty cool to have that. Yeah. <laughs> but I can kind of think of a lot of things about which that's true that I wouldn't really want to go through the installation procedure for. Yeah. My phone is old. I have a very old phone. It just calls people. It doesn't really do anything else. See, it's funny because I, I don't know, you know, hey, our did you know these things were phones too? Yeah. <laughs> that was the one moment that really cracked me up because we have these smartphones and I send text messages and instant messages and uh, Twitters and tweets and Facebooks and whatnot. And, and I'm like, oh, yeah, sometimes people can call me on it too. It's kind of funny how it works. But um, we're here to, to do a little bit of editing. So the way this is going to work, and uh, this is just me at the beginning of the show. I make no guarantees as to how it will go beyond the first couple minutes. But um, So the way this is going to work, I'm going to read the piece as Condrell sent it to us, and then Foosball is going to tear it to shreds, and Hirosaki and I are going to attempt to um, not allow it to completely expire. Mm. We've, Captain Hacksaw. Yes. The, the lesser known cousin of Captain Hammer. <laughs> the Hacksaw is not your penis. I certainly hope it's not. Wow. One would. One would, one <laughs> like, would hope. Like one does. But yes. Then uh, what we're going to try to do is come up with at least some kind of text to recommend as the final text. And a lot of this, so Condrell sent us an excerpt, which was, he introduces it as saying, this is the, coming close to the beginning of the second chapter, this is a description of the tribe lands where our intrepid adventurers will next need to infiltrate. That's all the context he gave us for the piece. And here is the piece itself. People from outside the tribe lands feared its sharp angles and perilous heights, deadly jungles with creatures only whispered about since prehistoric times, and endless plains with not a drop of exposed water to be found. They avoided it like a black mark on the maps, merchants and traders making half a thousand mile detours around its perimeter. 
At least one civilization, near the northern rim, had made a practice of banishing unwanteds into the tribe lands, with three days' worth of food and water, a knife, and their wits to accompany them. People from inside the tribe lands feared the outside world as desperately as the foreigners feared the tribes. Layered in generations of ritual and ceremony, their terror of the outside world was enshrined in their beads and feathers and the dances they danced around the fires at night, like the one that looked like a chicken but was supposed to be an eagle. They worshipped everything within their microcosm of the world just as fervently as they didn't worship anything from the outside. At least one tribe, who lived along the northern face of the labyrinth, thought that the sun and moon shone only on the tribe lands, and every once in a while a poor, untutored soul would wander in from the outside with three days' worth of food and water, a knife, and a dazzled look on their face like they were seeing the sun and moon for the first time. The tribe would take them in, nurture them, teach them the stories of father, son, and daughter moon, then free their soul to fly with the stars, who also shone only on the tribe lands, by throwing them bodily from the top of a special plateau. If the outside world and inside tribes ever bothered to meet, they would agree on only one thing, and that would be that they should never meet again. Mm. So there we go. And that is our three paragraphs. That is our three paragraphs. So why don't we all go around and kind of talk about our initial evaluation, and then we can go through line by line and see what we'd change and what we'd leave in. Okay. Okay. Here, Saki, why don't you start, and then we'll let Foosball tear it up, and then I'll conclude. Okay. Uh, I think it's very evocative. I get a good sense of place which is good because that's effectively what it's a description of. Um, I get sort of a mental image of, you know, what's going on here, but a lot of it is my brain sort of filling in details based on things I already know about similar things and not so much about what's being said in the actual text. It gets a little close to info dumpy, but not super egregiously. I think the fact that it's only like three paragraphs is, is okay. If it went on much longer than this, I would say like, okay, yeah, we're going to get back to the story now. Uh, but not having context for the story itself, it's kind of hard to say how much of a uh, detour of narrative this actually is. I think on the whole, there's a lot of long sentences, and at least the first two paragraphs are fairly long themselves. I think that that's something that I think could certainly be... Um, made a bit more brisk so that it's not feeling like you're reading something out of like a history textbook or something. Uh, but on the whole, I think a lot of what could be worked on is mostly just terms of phrasing and, you know, just, you know, the actual wording itself and not necessarily the content. I think most of what's actually being conveyed is fine. Uh, it's just the, you know, way that it is being conveyed. All right. Foos? Hmm. I'm sort of like listening to Hirosaki and my eyes are wide, but they can't see that because <laughs> to me, I, I, I see huge problems with this thing. Um, structurally, it's two very large paragraphs followed by a third single sentence paragraph. And Sometimes you can get away with that, especially if you've got a, you know, a strong point to make in your third paragraph. But the third paragraph here is, if the outside world and inside tribes ever bothered to meet, they would only agree on one thing, and that would be that they would, should never meet again. This isn't really a particularly strong thought. You know, it, it, it's, it's not really you know, a hammer blow to sort of you know, solidify what has just been said. So, you know, structurally, I have a problem with it. I have a problem with a lot of its phrasing. I... You know, I, I can sort of dig into each of the sentences and complain about them, but I think that's a little too much in depth right now. Um, stuff like the geography espoused, you know, sort of like, okay, there's endless plains and what is it? Uh, mountains and endless plains and lacking water. And then they could sort of go take a detour around it of uh, half a thousand miles. 500 miles is not that huge geographically. You know, I can, I can go on and on and on and on and on. It, it's, uh, it's muddy. It doesn't really sort of have a, a clear direction. It wants to have a clear direction, but it doesn't quite go in any direction, I feel. All right. Um, I think, I kind of think my evaluation sort of falls in between the two of you, which is interesting. Um, 
I think it's the the tone that he's trying for I got. My question was without the context of the rest of the book, I'm not sure if he's trying for a kind of lighter fantasy or if he's trying for a real suspenseful adventure. Um, there's a bunch of stuff with the phrasing, which we can we can go into in a little more detail uh, after this. I like the fact that he tries to add the humor in. I think it could be carried out a little better. And I actually kind of question the necessity and construction of the entire second paragraph. Um, and I'm looking at this from a tension within narrative kind of point of view. If the only because the only context we have is our intrepid adventurers have to cross these tramlands next. Yeah, infiltrate and, them. <clears throat> right, and so it feels like what he wants these paragraphs to do is build up how dangerous the tramlands are, how much tension is going to be in the story because these people are going into these terrible lands that merchants and traders go days out of their way to avoid that people use as a prison colony or a punishment for you know wrongdoers in their lands and all that and then you kind of give us this second paragraph which tells us all about the people that they're about to meet and immediately the more you know about it the less tension there is in the story and i would rather see um I'd rather see the first paragraph. I have some suggestions about reconstructing it so that it's not quite as, it's more showy and less telly. Um, but I'd rather see the second paragraph be all the hearsay about the people inside the tribe lands, what the outer people had heard about them, what they were, what was read. And and I will agree with Foos that the, the last paragraph feels like it's constructed to be a punchline of a joke or... Uh, from the content, it looks like it's supposed to be a punchline of a joke, but it feels more like it feels like this is the end of a Douglas Adams piece, but without as much wackiness. Yeah, like he's trying to be a little bit Douglas Adams with his fantasy, and mm. I think you need to commit one way or the other. It either yeah. needs to be a tense adventure story, or it needs to be like, well. The outer people all feared the people of the tribe lands, even though the people of the tribe lands dressed like chickens and worshipped posters of puppies hanging off branches, you know. Yeah. So, that is... Um, motivational posters? Yes. Or just generic posters with puppies? I, yeah. I, I was thinking the motivational posters, um, but that's because I just saw one recently. If I can... Um, but that's, so, that, so, that was my evaluation of it, and we can go around and discuss a little bit now and talk about some of the more specific suggestions we have. So mm. my first big thing is again, only kind of knowing the context as far as how much information you're going to even be putting in here. My big question is how much of this can the reader not learn by these characters actually going into the tribe lands themselves? Uh, in almost any case, you're better off getting the details as part of the action as opposed to outside of it to sort of prep you for it. And if this is where the characters are immediately going, then, you know, we can see what these places are like, you know, through their eyes or, you know, even like through dialogue of, you know, characters bandying about oh, this is what I've heard, this is what I've heard, and sort of, you know, trying to sort out the hearsay from the facts. This here, especially the second paragraph, everything is presented factually in, 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 in sort of that Douglas Adams-y way where you take the author's word for it that this is being stated as, you know, true and not, you know, this is a very, um, very loose, omniscient viewpoint that's not centered in anything. It's sort of just looking at like the world and sort of saying, okay, this is what this is like. And I agree with Kyle that that does sort of take a lot of the tension and mystery out of things. Um, and so that's sort of outside the scope of actually editing these paragraphs. That's more of a, how much do I want to put in here at all question? So, mm. but I think it's part of it. I mean, it is part I of think, it. I think, because when I when you go through an edit, part of it is saying, 
okay, I've put this I've put this section in so that the reader knows what the adventurers are going into. Right. But is that something that I want to present at this point? Exactly. And that's that's why I'm saying that up front rather than as part of, oh, you should definitely, you know, change this because you don't want to say it here. I'm saying that the author needs to look at this in context, you know, which I don't have. Uh, so it's up to sort of the author to say, okay, well, where in the course of the story itself can I put this in a more active and engaging way? If that mm. makes if that makes sense, do you understand what I'm saying? Mm. It's a little difficult for us because this whole little section doesn't actually have any characters appearing in it. It's purely that you know third person omniscient, um, you know, descriptive material, right? And so. You know, we could, we could take the tack of saying, well, let's assume that it's a it's just a nice little descriptive introduction to the chapter and that, you know, he does need a little bit of descriptive introduction there. Um, but that said, I still kind of question the – I actually like – I still kind of question the need for the second paragraph or mm. the need for it as is. Mm. Um, so, Fuz, you mentioned you kind of you see where he's trying to go with it. Can you talk a little more about? Yeah, if you sort of look at the first paragraph, he's sort of going, "Okay, here's this you know big scary place," and then you know the, the second paragraph is again, you know, they sort of you know they're sort of closer to us, you know, they but they they sort of more personal. They sort of have you know a dance that like is meant to look like an eagle, but it looks like a chicken, and you know it's sort of very humanizing. But it's still very, very threatening because suddenly they sort of take people in, nurture them, and sort of randomly chuck them off a plateau. So, you know, it, it, it's sort of trying to build up this threat, but this very sort of not exactly a known threat. You know, I almost want to say that this guy's going to follow it up with, you know, something from the perspective of one of the tribe's members or have them meet a tribe's member or something, and he's sort of trying to get them humanized ahead of that. But, you know, it, it, it's definitely taking a threatening edge. Right. And I think he's trying to, and that's what that's what kind of makes me feel like he wanted it to be. He wanted to create a little bit of tension because the adventurers are going into this place, and but at the same time, the second paragraph feels to me like it's telling you what's going to happen to the adventurers before you it's find set, out. It's setting up an expectation, and I think if he breaks that expectation, then he's. It's, he's perfectly, you know, legitimate to set up expectations. But if he's going to play it straight, um, you should just play it straight. Right, because, I mean, my point that I was sort of making is this doesn't look like it's setting up for, you know, uh, you know, expectation breaking because it is stated as fact. And that sort of lends itself to the thought that, well, if this is what things are like, then this is what they're going to run into. Not, this is what they've heard things are like, and what they run into is something different. Like, that's not how this is presented. Right. Mm. And I think it would be fun to have, I, I actually like the idea of the, you know having the characters talk back and forth about how, yeah. well, oh, well, I heard in the tribe lands that there's, you know, people who... If the children don't pass their rights of adulthood, they slaughter them and eat them at the feast or something. Um, oh, well, I heard that if they see an outsider from two miles away, they can put an arrow through his eye socket. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. And then, mm. they, and then they get in and they're, you know, worshiping motivational puppy posters and dancing around in chicken feathers. And they're all, you know, very pleasant people. But, and then they're put inside of a wicker man. <laughs> no. No wicker. <laughs> yeah, wicker is bad stuff, particularly when you ask artists to draw wicker. Ooh. It's very complex to draw. Yeah, the original Wicker Man is a great movie. Um, I think looking at this, on the one hand we can say that, okay, we, it would be better if we do it through dialogue, but I think that's a style that we three have. I don't know if it's necessarily valid for us to sort of attack this by going, okay, we would have done it differently from the beginning. That's true. Mm. Um, but I do think, you know, you could you could do the second paragraph without dialogue and just say, you know, some of the legends told were blah. You know, in a, in the northern city of Kalakabir, they, they said that the tribe lands were home to a race of half yeah. muskrat, half human 
creatures that, you know, sacrificed animals to their pagan god. And on the eastern rim, the city of blah, 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 thought that the tribe's people were all, um, you know, bloodthirsty Scrabble players who killed their opponent on a triple word score. And... (laughs) Extreme Scrabble. Have you and Kit been playing Scrabble and are you sore about it or something? No, no. Kit and I don't play Scrabble. That's not why he's sore. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm out for the podcast. See you guys next week. Um, All you otters with your paws and your innuendos. I'm not not biting that. I'm not taking that bait. Sorry. (laughs) I think when you mentioned the rooms, um, are you going to take that bait? I'm not taking any bait. (laughs) So you're not going to take the bait of room? Okay. Um, When you mentioned the rooms, um, you know, the northern room, the eastern room, I find that kind of strange in relation to how variable these tribe lands are because it's sharp angles, it's perilous heights, it's deadly jungles, it's endless plains. This doesn't sound like an area with a very definitive border. Um, yeah. That's true. Although there seems to be a perimeter and, you know, he mentions the northern rim and... The detour. I mean, maybe the, maybe the outside people built a big fence. Yeah. And they have patrols like... <laughs> Amateur see, militia is- patrols around the fence. <laughs> Sorry, little Arizona humor there. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, you know, I-, I was going to say, you know, that you're getting close to the perimeter of the tribe lands when Danielle Rousseau comes out of the woods with her rifle and says cryptic things. <laughs> I think what, there's a need for internal consistency with this piece already. Um, you know, it's not just that; it's also. You know, if, if, you, if you look at this, okay, the tribe will take them in, nurture them, teach them the stories of Father, Son, and Daughter Moon, and then kill them. Um, granted, that, you know, that sounds brutal, but they're sort of trained not to believe in anything that exists from out the outside. Why are they taking the time to sort of take them in, nurture them, teach them the stories? You know, uh, uh, that doesn't strike me as particularly brutal against outsiders, even though they kill them in the end. Right, right. It's... And I think that was mostly, it feels like that was put in there for the humor value, where Maybe. it was kind of like, he was trying to do a double back, where he said, oh, the, these tribes people are all feared nice, and brutal and everything, wonderful. and then a stranger wanders in, and they take care of them and nurture them, and they teach them their stories, and they accept them as part of their community, and then they throw them off a plateau and kill them. Thud. Ha ha. Gotcha. Mm. Fool me once? Nah, never mind. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, that that is possible, but um, but yeah, again, it, I agree. It, I agree. It's it, not um, it's not wholly consistent, and even that right. change change in tone sort of you know erodes consistency, even though that's eroding the narrative consistency rather than the internal consistency. Right, and it's not, it's it's kind of it's kind of too quickly done, like you you change over and then you change back all within a single sentence. And it's, you know, you kind of probably want to spend a little more time on that. Um, so just, I, I went through like at least the first paragraph and then I, I got distracted by thinking about, well, do you want to write the second paragraph at all? But one of the things that I did specifically want to point out that kind of goes with our show and telling thing is when he says, People from outside the tribe lands feared its sharp angles and perilous heights, blah, blah, blah. And that construction there, I want to read sort of a, an alternate sentence to that. Legend said the tribe lands were nothing but dark jungles, treacherous cliffs, and forbidding deserts. And the difference in that second one is you're not telling the reader how people feel about it. Yeah. You're telling the reader what the legends are, and then the more you build it up, the more you can infer how the people from outside felt about it, because you're trying to create that impression with your reader, instead of saying flat out, people from the outside feared the tribe lands because of yeah. blah, blah, mm. blah. Also, as written, I will admit that I actually had to read it a couple of times before I parsed it correctly. Uh, and that first sentence, yeah. I think, is too long. Yeah. I mean, for sure. 
I think another element is that the moment that you save people from outside the tribe lands, that sort of immediately sort of throws you out of the narrative. When you sort of do it as a legend, you're much more into it. You can sort of, you know, be more emotively sympathetic with the yeah. fear because suddenly it's your fear as you read about this scary thing. Right. Yeah, because now you're relating directly to the reader and not just to this nebulous people. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and whenever whenever you say, you know, these people felt this, as you say, you're, you're putting the reader at a distance from those people and from the events of the narrative itself. I think I just repeated what you guys both said. <laughs> Maybe more concisely. Yeah, I was going to say, more succinctly. We are editing each other, so. Yes. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, that first that first sentence, uh, I'll read it again. People from outside the tribe lands feared its sharp angles and perilous heights, deadly jungles with creatures only whispered about since prehistoric times, and endless plains with not a drop of exposed water to be found. So, plains with not a drop of exposed water to be found, you could just turn into the word deserts. Yeah. Well, you can get plains with no exposed water, but that's related to very strange water table things. Um, I think my my main issue is that you've suddenly got jungles which suddenly become plains. Um, there's vast transitionary stage, uh, spaces required to do that. Right. And my other question, well, apart from that, the the creatures only whispered about since prehistoric times. Again, these kind of descriptive phrases that are dropped into this sentence are a little long to be in an introductory yeah. sentence. Um, and lastly, I'm kind of wondering what sharp angles are a geographic feature that people would be scared of. Unless we're talking about mountains. some Lovecraftian city. I know. With it's like non-Euclidean, Non-Euclidean yes. angles. <laughs> <laughs> and it's cyclopean structures. Yeah. Um, so sharp angles is, it's one of those examples of things that I've, I've talked about, I think from time to time, if maybe not on the podcast, but words that sound good when you're writing them and they have the right tone and they convey the feel that you want, but when you go back and look at them, they don't actually mean the right thing. Yeah. And I understand what he's trying to do. Sharp angle is, it's a, it's kind of dangerous. Yeah. It implies corners and points and... It's stuff. flavorful sprinkles, but it's not meat. Right. And perilous heights is better, but it's still, um, it just makes me think of, uh, we were talking recently about uh, the. I haven't looked this up on TV tropes, but I'm sure there's a TV trope about the the dangerous endless cliff. Yeah, the cliff mm-hmm. face. Um, the movie we were talking about was Van Helsing, which uses the the cliff <sighs> face in the middle of nowhere terribly. But that's what that makes me think of. It's like you'll be oh running along in the jungle and oh no two mile long cliff. Um. So in the middle of Europe, <laughs> right? Yeah. in the middle of Europe. Yeah. Not a river at the bottom or anything, um, but anyway, the so sharp angles and perilous heights. I I, I kind of would like to see more specifics there. Yeah, because the honestly, the only thing that comes to mind when I try to think of that is like the hyena territory and the lion king with yeah. those weird stylized like jagged mountain things, which also don't exist in the savannah in Africa. So I don't know why they're there. <laughs> Well, there are mountains. There are, well, kind of. Yeah, but they, they don't look like right. jaggy little teeth that come out of the middle of nowhere. The, no. the Drakensberg do, but they're not exactly on the savannah. Exactly. <laughs> so, that, this is one of those cases where we talk about the right details. And the details have to be concrete enough that they can produce a good image in the mind of the reader. And they also have to be small and specific enough that they feel real. And I think this is... Will, a, go ahead. I will say that there's one good thing about the... Because he, he's got a progression of details. And he starts off with sharp angles and perilous heights, which sort of imply mountains. Mm-hmm. And he sort of goes to sort of these cloistered, you know, sort of tangled-sounding jungles that, are, you know, sort of have invisible creatures in them. And then he sort of moves it out to large open space with endless plains. And I, I, I will say I like that progression of, of concepts. But I think that's just about the only thing that this line has going for it. <laughs> and I think you could... With with a very little bit of work, I'm not saying you would keep most of the words, but you could take that progression and say something like, 
and maybe actually this is a place where you could define what the perimeter is. Maybe the perimeter is a mountain range. Yeah. And so he said, you know, beyond the sharp angles and treacherous mountain passes, there were rumored to be valleys full of dark, forbidden jungles and prehistoric creatures. Sea stacks and pylons. Right. And And, uh, and beyond those uh, forbidden deserts where, you know, the plains went on for days and there was no water and there were cannibal fennecs and whatnot. What? Cannibal Cannibal fennecs would be a great name for a rock band, by the way. (laughs) That would be... (laughs) We'll get Savern on that. Yeah. But now the interesting thing is, immediately he follows it up with maps. So it's not this unknown territory. He, they avoided it like a black mark on the maps, implying, I mean, okay, it's not a factual implication, but I mean, you know, the sort of back of the mind thing, okay, this place is on a map. Right. And they're talking about merchants and traders avoiding it intentionally, which implies that it is on their maps. And I think I'd suggested something like, Instead of again, instead of saying merchants and traders avoided it, say something like the trade routes were diverted around, you know, yeah. hundreds of miles out of their way to avoid going through it or something yeah. like that. Also, please say hundreds, don't say half a thousand miles. Yeah. That's it sounds too much like you're trying to be clever. When have you ever heard somebody say, Oh, it's half a thousand miles away? Like nobody ever says that. Don't say that here. Yeah, the song goes, I will walk five hundred miles. Yes. And I would and walk five hundred more. more. Just to be the man <laughs> who walked a thousand miles. Um, I, I like the part about Haverin too, but in that song, anyway. Um, I also like. I also was, had a question about they avoided it like a black mark on the maps. What's a what yeah. would be a black mark that isn't the tribal lands that they would have like if they spill a lot of ink yeah. on their maps? They'd be like, oh, we don't know what's there. We better go around. <laughs> Yeah. Um, like, they avoided it because they knew it was dangerous, and yeah. their maps told them to avoid it. <laughs> like, that's what it should say. Right. And again, I think I wrote a little suggestion, something... Yeah, I think I just wrote, the trade the trade routes curved hundreds of miles out of the way to avoid them, I think is all I put there. I think I, I might sort of keep the map image, but, you know, sort of have it like, you know, like, you know, the trader's maps, you know, had nothing there, but, you know, intricately drawn, like, threatening dragons and things you know but you'd need to take a very different direction descriptively to pull that off yeah oh actually i like that i do too you could say the the trade routes it was only visible on the maps as a as in it was only it only appeared on the maps as an invisible obstruction around which all the trade routes were drawn yeah or something like that and also the use of the passive voice there is actually pretty evocative itself because it sort of like implies this. You That's know, also very threatening because suddenly it's all unknown again. Detachment yeah. from having anything to want to do with this place, which I think is good. Suck it, high school English teachers who told you never to use the passive voice. <laughs> the, the passive voice should never be used. <laughs> <laughs> R.I.P. Mm. William Sapphire. <laughs> Now, there's another thing that worries me a bit, which is goes at least one civilization. How many civilizations are there? Yeah, his use of the word civilization rather than city or city-state or country or yeah. nation or or even... Uh, it sounds like you're playing civilization like on your PC. Right, or even clan or yeah. something like that. I think, I think clan would be a good thing, but we'd really need to know more about the larger setting to have a meaningful suggestion yeah. on how to change that. Because then you've got like you know like Western civilization versus you know other kinds of things, but then it's just like, well, if this is only a few hundred miles across, how many differing civilizations are really, you know, matching yeah. up in this one spot? That doesn't really make a lot of sense. Right. Like, yeah. it, is the, are the tribal lands like the size of Liechtenstein or the size of Mongolia or yeah. the size of Africa? You know. Poughkeepsie. I don't, I don't have a sense of scale, you know, the size of our living room. There's a mountain over there, and then there's a jungle over here, and then if, you know, the 10 feet before the kitchen, there's no water, so you have to be careful. Yep. I really want to know how you guys got that much square footage. <laughs> Magic. I mean, it's a, tar- I mean, it's a TARDIS too. house. It's a TARDIS house. 
hardest bunker. <laughs> I think Fuzz Volsier just perked up somewhere. <laughs> TARDIS house? <laughs> is it a Type 40 TARDIS? <laughs> See, all it takes is like three words and I'm beyond my Doctor Who knowledge. <laughs> uh, Reminds me, I have to work um, on Summerhill. Right. What's interesting is the practice of banishing you know, these people that they don't want into the tribe lands. Because on the surface, that sounds like a cool idea, but it, you know, like, but it's a little bit cliche, it's a little bit archetypal, and I think from the sounds of it, it's closer to what I associate with things like you know, trials by ordeal for initiation. You know, the, normally when you, you know, banish people, you, you really throw them out. If right. you sort of send them somewhere that's like, you know, horrendously tough, normally you expect them to come back tougher than before. So, yeah. or why would you send three days worth of food and water with them if you're if you're banishing them as a punishment? It would be just like get the hell out. Yeah. We don't ever want to see yeah. you again. Yeah, and honestly, it almost sounds more like the people in the tribe lands would banish people out of them. People right. wouldn't banish other folks into them. That just seems kind of a and little I, backwards. Yeah. I think again, and on this one, I had a little bit of suggestion. One of my this one is kind of a a case of where I thought there was a little too much detail. The whole banishing people with three days worth of food and water and a knife and their wits. And I know that, you know, now having read the whole piece, it, I know that the payoff came, comes in the second paragraph to that. Right. But I still think it's a little, and, and for the reasons, Foos, that you were saying, um, I think it's it's a little inconsistent. And I could see more if a criminal from that civilization chose exile rather than death and said, okay, you can't kill me, I'm going to run away, and I'm going to run into the tribe lands where I know nobody's going to follow me. Mm. Which is more interesting in a way, too. Mm. But And I had not thought about your idea that the tribe lands people would banish their unbelievers to the outside, which also, I think, is, yeah. is a neat idea. Mm. I will say that the material here could be used for, um, you know, sort of foreshadowing, you know, like the adventurers come across a skeleton and... You know, the reader sort of needs some contextual clue to know that it's not just some random skeleton that's been dropped in the middle of nowhere. It's like, you know, this, you know, they search him and they find, you know, signs of, you know, the culture they're familiar with, you know, like tools or whatnot, you know, like ironworking or whatever. I don't, I don't know how advanced the, you know, people outside the tribe lands are by comparison. Well, I, w- I will say one thing um, is you do get a sense from this description of what level of technology, civilization, and whatnot. They have merchants, traders, um, but they don't have a lot of information passing around. So I'm getting... And it also feels like it's not big city yeah. worlds. So it feels like it's kind of maybe like Roman Empire level, maybe a little before that. Yeah, that's sort of the gist I'm getting as well. Well, I mean, tribes are apparently a significant government system because there are tribe lands so yeah that's reasonable right um yeah and i'd said i actually had said uh how did i rewrite that the only contact anyone had with the tribe lands was when a criminal chose exile rather than death to the cities that bordered the tribe lands that came to much the same thing which Mm. is quickly written but you know the idea being we don't care if you stay here and let us chop your head off or if you go into the tribe lands where no one ever comes back from. Yeah, we're, like, we're, we're quit not, of you either way. Yeah, exactly. And of course, sort of analyzing this by based on, you know, like the actual information conveyed, we have geographic information, we have threat information, we have information about um, getting rid of criminals by sending them into the tribe lands. There are a lot of ways to format that information without necessarily digging into three sentences in one paragraph. Right. And I might also I might almost think, you know, using the first two paragraphs instead of I, I again I kind of see what he's trying to do with this is what the outside people think and this is what the inside people think. But I think it would almost be more powerful if it was if it was all from one perspective and then you're allowed to find out later through the narrative what the differences are. Right. Because mm-hmm. telling telling the reader all this information up front, it's not, like you said, it's not real an info dump. It's not that complex. I'm sorry, not that long. But what it does do is 
it doesn't leave the reader much room yeah. to think about it things front and figure loads things the reader's out. expectations right is what it does it, it, it also diffuses the focus because, I mean, you know, the, the, it, it's not like this whole thing is building up to one moment where, you know, your character is sort of seen being shoved out of their city with food, water, and a knife. Um, you know, it sort of meanders back and forth. Right. Um, does that – it feels like we're, we're kind of wrapping up with at least the first paragraph. Mm. Um, and what do we have for the second one? I find the word desperately quite strange because it goes, people from inside the tribe lands feared the outside world as desperately as the foreigners fear the tribes. Desperately is a funny word to use. Yeah, agreed. It's a yeah. little bit awkward there. Yeah, to, uh, to fear desperately. That, yeah, that does sound strange. What I will say is that the, you know, the, the, the first words, you know, people from inside the tribe lands, um, you know, it, it, it's a direct you know, mirroring of the first paragraph, which is people from outside the tribe lands. And yep. that can be a good effect, and you, but you need to be careful with it. You need to be using it very deliberately if you're going to use it. That is a, uh, yeah, parallel construction. Yeah. <laughs> That's a term for you guys. <laughs> it's a term for me. Uh, yeah, that's... Yeah, also... That's what that's called. Specifically speaking... In the first line, they fear the tribe lands, its sharp angles, its perilous heights, its deadly jungles, its creatures, its endless plains, its lack of water. They do not actually mention fearing the tribes. Right. So, it's a, uh, you know, as desperately as foreigners fear the tribes? No. The foreigners fear the terrain. Yeah. As, as desperately as the foreigners fear the tribe lands. Yeah. Or the, yeah, the geographical features and the legends and... And whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because by this point, we don't even know anything about the tribes themselves. And even really at the end of this paragraph, we still don't know a whole lot about them. We know, like, two points of factological interest, and that's about it. Neither right. of which is and, really terribly salient. And the second sentence there, they, they say, Their terror of the outside world was enshrined in their beads and feathers and the dances they danced around the fires at night, like the one that looked like a chicken was supposed to be an eagle. Yeah, my notes for this pe yeah. particular piece is just like sort of strewed with random question marks. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's, so again, and I think that's yeah. supposed to be a joke, but it feels like he started with one idea at the beginning of that sentence and then ended up with, hey, it would be kind of funny if they danced like an eagle, but it looked like a chicken and it ended up with a joke. Because I don't, I don't get anything about their terror of the outside world after he says they were afraid of the outside world. After that specific phrase, I don't get anything about that. All he says is they worship their own world, yeah. and there's no. You know, the, there's also uh, yeah. I was gonna say there's there's also like a participle issue in the leading clause, uh, or says layered in generations of ritual and ceremony, their terror of the outside world, like that, like the antecedent there, it makes it sound like their terror is laid in layered in ritual and ceremony. Yeah, which you see what I mean. Be. Which it can it be, but I don't. I don't think that's what it means, or I don't think that's what it's supposed like to mean. Yeah, it needs to sort of be something you know, like layered in generations of ritual and ceremony. Their terror of the outside world was enshrined in their dark rituals of sacrifice to you know blah blah the god of you know the barrier between this world and the outer world or you know whatever. It needs to be enshrined in something, not in beads and feathers and dances. It needs to have a specific instance of something powerful and scary about why they have focused all of their, you know, terror on that. Right. And, um, and, and that, and I think the construction of that sentence isn't bad, but, but yeah, the, the antecedent is, um, a little... It's awkward because I can't tell if it's intentional or not. Well, it's awkward because if you said... If you turn it around and say their terror of the outside world was layered in generations of ritual and ceremony, I'm not sure what the word layered means. I think that's yeah. the one that's maybe this reinforced. Was, was steeped in generations? Reinforced yeah. or steeped. Yeah, yeah. you could that was that seems to make a little in, more sense. Yeah, that sort of thing. Because I think what he's trying to say is is, you know, reinforced by generations of ritual and ceremony. In other words, they fear the outside world because all their rituals say the outside world is scary. And they've always done it that way. But then we don't get any specifics about why they think the outside world is scary or what these rituals are that yeah. teach them that the outside world is scary, which yeah. would be nice to like, have. Dancing like an eagle, like I don't see what that has. That The immediate relevance isn't there, and then it's not explained. 
maybe it was that like people from the outside came and saw their eagle dance and laughed at them because they said it looked like a chicken and then <laughs> that's why they're terrified of the outside world because they're right. afraid of being made fun of yeah i can relate to that <laughs> i was in high school i know how that feels i i have done the chicken dance at a wedding so i can totally relate and so moving on to the, the next bit here, it says, you know, they worshipped everything within their microcosm of the world just as fervently as they didn't worship anything from the outside. I don't think you can fervently not do something. That was my, that's also, my, my first thought when I read that. I'm like, how could, you can't fervently not do something. But, you know, the, the other problem is, is that they don't really know anything about the outside to worship it. So, you know, they, they, they can't really reject it, which is what is trying to be said. Right. Right. Um, they can fear it. They could say they worshipped everything within their microcosm of the world just as fervently as they feared every anything that lay outside it. Yeah. Um, and we could, again, you know, this is assuming that you want to reveal this much at all, but um, maybe this would be better served by having, you know, one of the tribesmen who had been kicked out of his tribe and into a city had evinced a form of hysterical blindness where he refused to see anything because he didn't believe that anything could exist outside the world and you know acknowledging like it would be on the too, internet. too terrifying can't um, unsee ah uh, man there have been times when I've wished I had hysterical blindness at any Maybe rate next yes. time. and then after that one we have the payoff to the um, to the face at the to the Sorry, I'm reading part of the text. We have the payoff to the end of the first paragraph, which is one tribe thought that the sun and moon shone only on the tribe lands, and every once in a while, a poor untutored soul would wander in from the outside with three days' worth of food and water, a knife, and a dazzled look on their face like they were seeing the sun and moon for the first time. Um, problems with this sentence. At least one tribe who lived along the northern face of the labyrinth thought that the sun and moon shone only on the tribe lands. That's one thought. Every once in a while, a poor untutored soul would wander in from the outside with three days' worth of food and the water and knife and blah, blah, blah. That's completely separate. There's no reason to link those two thoughts with a conjunction. Yeah. They should be... I would actually... I'd actually break it up into a separate paragraph entirely. Yeah. I, I think... Yeah. I think that's uh, that's probably the way I would go with it, too. And I'm also, not quite sure why they would have a dazzled look on their face like they were seeing the sun and moon for the first time. Yeah. They might be afraid that they ran across people, but I mean, they're in what's clearly you've set out as this is a dangerous situation to be in. I don't think they'd be like dumbstruck in awe. I think they'd, you know, be tenaciously clinging to life, if anything. Unless they're like, you know, the city of El Dorado is what's in the middle of the tribe lands and they wander yeah. in and they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And the people are like, yes, welcome. Come up here to the highest plateau. Yeah. Now, <laughs> we'll show you how nice stand, it looks from up here. Stand real close <laughs> to the edge. This is Sparta! <laughs> ah, sorry. The thing is, though... It's movie it reference day on Unsheathed. <laughs> if, if it is meant to be dazzled, you know, there's nothing to dazzle us as a reader. So, you know, sort of saying, oh, they're completely amazed. Either needs to sort of be, you know, they sort of need to hang a, a lamp on that. So, you know, we know that there's something that we as readers are not seeing. Or alternately, they need to give us as readers something to be dazzled by. Yeah, and again, there's a lack of sort of specificity here. It's everything's in general terms. Like you mention, I and mean, he mentions this labyrinth here, just kind of out of nowhere, you know, without any real introduction, and then doesn't pick up on it again. Uh, so, I mean, if there is something, you know, really like special and bedazzling, you know, we need to be told what that is and why. As it is, we just sort of get like a random detail that seems to be thrown in there, as if it's supposed to be intriguing. But since it doesn't come from anything and then doesn't go anywhere, it just sort of is. And it makes me wonder, like, all right, why why is that detail there if it's not doing anything? Right. Yeah. I have to admit, I'm amazed that that uh, Hirosaki spotted that because I actually hadn't noticed the labyrinth. It was so random and so <laughs> off to the side that it just sort of was invisible for me. See, I am paying attention, Foos. So yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, definitely, Condro can turn a phrase. I think this is this is something that I would view as as like a first draft where you've written down a bunch of stuff that kind of, you know, you're, it's not quite throwing darts at a board, but it's yeah. sort of like, I'm just going to write down a bunch of stuff that kind of says 
something near what I want to say. And then you'll want to look back and apply those turns of phrase. Because when you read it, apart from the, some of the sentences being kind of long, you, you do want to break that up. But when you read it out loud, it does flow fairly well. And that's something that, you know, in a lot of amateur yeah. pros, you don't really see. Yeah, like the language itself is technically competent and... You know, the, the commas are all used properly and whatnot. I mean, that's not an issue. <laughs> A-plus on comma use, Chondral. Which, having read slush pile entries before, I can say that that is not something to take for granted, that your author knows how to actually write. Oh, and I would, I just want to take a quick break in here to, to say, if you haven't, if you don't follow my live journal, um, there's a, an author who I follow who took to reading a slush pile and posted a beautiful, lovely rant on why your first paragraphs need to grab the reader right away. And just, uh, you know, go to my live journal. There's a recent entry from like end of June, something like that, about why your first paragraph's important. And it links to her live journal, which is Yuki underscore O-N-N-A, I think. Yeah. But she posts a lot, so it might be easier to find it through mine. And you should follow mine anyway. But... Yeah, reading just reading slush piles opens your eyes to how difficult it is to really put a good story together. Yeah. And if you don't have an access to your own slush pile, just go to FA and look at the recent story entries. <laughs> because when it comes to slush pile stuff, I mean, you will like if you get 3 paragraphs into something, you can pretty much tell is this worth my time to read or not. Yeah. And I'm just like, okay, like yeah, there's 12 more pages of this, but I'm done. Right. Next story. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then third, I think, was there anything else we wanted to talk about with the second paragraph? Uh, yeah, no, other than to sort of reiterate how much this really needs to be there and how much can be brought out through action and scene and not through info dump summary. Right. Fu's had one Some, thing. Yeah. Something that bugs me about that last sentence, which doesn't come up when you read it because it's purely a typographical thing. Um, Candrel uses, uh, parentheses to get, to go around, roundy brackets to go around um, a small phrase. <laughs> so with British people with your cute names for everything. Is that what they call them in the, in the UK? Roundy brackets? <laughs> I don't know. Um, the full sentence is, the tribe would take them in, nurture them, teach them the stories of father, son, and daughter moon, then free this all to fly with the stars, roundy bracket, who also shone, uh, shone, who also shone only on the tribe lands, roundy bracket, by throwing them bodily from the top of the special plateau. Using parentheses like that is a little bit, you know, it sort of breaks away from, you know, normal structure of prose. Um, I use it, but I use it for a specific effect. This is sort of, is it to a specific effect or is it just randomly dropping it in there? This to me really feels a bit like the Douglas Adams thing. I was just about to say the exact same thing. It feels very Douglas Adams-y. Yeah, because... Douglas Adams used parentheses like that a hell of a lot in uh, Hitchhiker. So, and but when he did, it became kind of a stylistic thing. And yeah. I think the yeah. problem with it in here, and now that I now that I look at it, I think you're right about it. Is he drops it into the middle of a sentence that has a particular energetic progression? It's not like <clears throat> it's not like he's saying, "I thought that you know the sun and moon and shown only in the tribe lands." Parentheses the stars shown wherever they wanted. Yeah. It's not like a little appendix to a yeah. previous thought. It's, you know, we're going to free their soul yeah. to fly with the stars. And again, you know, here, the stars haven't even been mentioned before in this paragraph. He talks a lot about the sun and moon. So why not say, teach them the stories of father, son, and daughter moon, then free their soul to fly with the sun and moon, or, you know, construct that around, but yeah. use the sun and moon. Why bring the stars in at all? But also, you could just use commas instead of brackets. It's really right. not that far, uh, uh, you know, because the thing is, normally when you use parentheses, you do it, use it for something that's completely aside from what you're saying. Um, this is pretty in context context with the rest of the sentence. Yeah, it's not it's yeah. not defying what's already being said. It's kind of within expectations, which doesn't really need a special call-out, or at least not a parenthetical call-out. Right. Um, yeah, so that yeah, I agree with that as well. So then we have the last one, which I think we've already pretty much covered. There's not too much else to talk about there. If the outside world and inside tribes ever bothered to meet, they would agree on only one thing, and that would be that they should never meet again. Which is 
it again feels kind of punchliney. Yeah, but it's like the only thing they have in common is that they have nothing in common. Right. Yeah. It's almost too long though, because you know, for 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 it to be good, you know, a good sort of punch, as it were, and not necessarily punchline as in a punch like a joke, but something to sort of, you know, really sort of underline what's gone ahead, what's gone previously. Um, you know, it could be shorter, it could be sharper. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it feels like they did, they have met, kind exactly, of, because yeah. you've just gone through a whole paragraph about what happens when people from the outside come into the tribe lands. Mm. And, you know, the people from the tribe lands clearly know what they think of people who come in. They have a whole, you know, ritual process of what they do with them. Right. So... And the, the, but this also br- brings to question, you know, the perspective of narrative. Because while we're assuming it's uh, third-person omniscient, it could be, you know, sort of more from the perspective of the outla- outlanders or from the tribals. We don't necessarily have a, a clear expectation there. Right. Okay. Well, I think that. Uh, any part and thoughts for for Condrill? Uh, one other thing, which is also another typographic thing that doesn't come up when you're just reading it out loud, uh, halfway through, the term tribe lands goes from being uncapitalized to capitalized. Ooh. Yes, you definitely want to be consistent with consistent that. Consistent with your terminology. But also, it, you want otters to... And once, 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 it's, once it switches, <laughs> once it switches, it stays, it stays switched. But for mm. the first paragraph and a half, it's lowercase, and then suddenly it's all uppercase. Yes, mm. otter, otters make, sometimes make good proofreaders. Yeah, when they can keep their attention focused. Squirrel! <laughs> <laughs> I don't think otters okay. would be very interested in going after squirrels, unless they were really slutty, I don't know. So, <laughs> sorry. You just wrote a whole story about a squirrel. Yeah. It was pretty slutty. There's no otters in it, though. That's too bad. <laughs> I think. The, the otters are implied. Uh, yeah, <laughs> probably, actually. So, we're going to, in the interest of kind of keeping this to a reasonable length, I think we we did go through and hopefully gave some helpful feedback Bitching. to Conroll. And, uh, you know, again, I want to say the the thoughts in here, there's a lot of cool ideas. There's probably, I think, too many cool ideas, and you need to pare it down to the yeah. ones that are most important to the reader yeah. and make sure you're consistent with how you're presenting them. But... You certainly, you know, Condor, you can certainly um, construct the phrases well enough. I think it's just a matter of making sure that in a couple cases, you're using the right word. In another few cases, you know, that you're given the correct information and that, you know, you stay consistent with what you're telling the reader. But uh, overall, I'd be real interested to hear what you do with our feedback on this. Yeah, and... um you know, on the subject, if you have some good ideas, I'm going to, again, reiterate message itch and save some of your cool ideas for actual scenes in the story and not just, you know, one-off lines that the reader will parse over and then might not even have it stick with them. Like if you can actually take something and put it into part of what's happening, then, you know, that will you know make a more interesting impression on the people who are reading it. Yeah, I, I think an important thing, though, is to, to remember to keep focus on, you know, each paragraph here is, is, is devoted to too many things. You know, you sort of need to sort of think of language as you've got a word, and that conveys something. And if you need to convey something more complex, you need to use a sentence. And if you need to convey something more complex than that, you need to use a paragraph. But you still need to be conveying one thing. And a lot of these paragraphs are sort of hopping all over the place, and, you know, there needs to be a lot more focus. Right. And I remember from high school English class when we were being taught how to write essays, that essays went, an essay was constructed by, you would introduce your topic in the first paragraph. Yeah. And then the essay, the first paragraph essentially is telling the reader, this is what the essay is going to be about. And then each paragraph was you know, here's the first, the first sentence is, here's the first thought, and then either here's the background for it, here's the support for it, or here's where I'm progressing with it. And mm. then when you move to a new thought, you move to a new paragraph. And that's completely the wrong way to write prose. <laughs> you can't write prose like that at all. And I, th- I, see, I see what you mean, because you, Kendrell's doing that. You, you, you can't. You can't. But <laughs> you can't. I'm... Um, 
you're you're affecting me with your evil British accent, Kershaw. It's not even really a British accent. You uh, know? No, that's true. Wow, you just went to, like New Jersey there. I have to say grits. Dude. I have to say grits a few times now. Grits. Get it back. Um, grits. But y'all had you, your grits. You 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 cannot write prose that structurally, but it does help when you're writing it to say, okay, you know, this paragraph has gone from being a geographical description of what happens from with people inside the tribe lands and you know where they live to this whole bizarre ritual well that ritual maybe needs to be in its own paragraph yeah. needs to be set off um mm. so in a sense i'm you know again that was high school english class but it, the guidelines i think holds true and it's in line with what you said which is you know a word conveys one thing a group of words in a sentence conveys a more complete thought a paragraph expands on that thought and a picture is a thousand words yes and a paragraph is half a picture yes <laughs> got to be a real wrong paragraph but all right so we're going to leave it there i want to really thank condrell for uh putting himself out there and exposing himself to the hacksaw and the sharp teeth and whatnots and yeah i just uh, want to point out that uh this is what we can do with uh, three paragraphs. So with that in mind, how many of you out there still really want to write a novel? <laughs> and What's worse is that you've got to do this to yourself yeah, while you're I was, writing. I, I, yeah, exactly right. I was just going to say, this is you know, us going over three paragraphs. You need to be able to do this to your own prose, and you need to be able to do it to the whole thing. To the whole thing. So, good luck. This is when people are like, hey, Hirosaki, how come you haven't written a novel? Well, you know what? It's not as simple as I'll write a novel. Right. And I did. I just haven't finished it yet. Right. You finished a second draft. Uh, Well, draft 1.5. Second draft. Because Foosball didn't like draft 0.5 enough. <clears throat> You're not a piece of software. You can't do mid-versions and think it counts for something. It was a complete draft of what I was trying to write at the time. Yes. And I said, then it was draft 1.0. And then this revision is draft 2.0. Okay, fine. <laughs> All right. Now you're making Kit angry. I know. Kit's, <laughs> Kit's over in the corner threatening me with all kinds of stuff. All right. Homer. And you don't get to watch. I better leave, I better leave before my Kinsey scale breaks. <laughs> uh, that old thing. You need to get an updated one. You know, okay. n- n- now, like, instead of having, like, the, you know, the disappointing prices right horns we can have like the disappointing vuvuzela <laughs> <laughs> that's the sound everybody but germany the netherlands spain and uruguay is making right now <laughs> pretty much <laughs> all right i will wrap up um, <laughs> for 90 minutes F- foosball you can find his um his Sersley series and his prose and all kinds of other wonderful, valuable stuff on Furfinity. Uh-huh. F double O triple Z. F double O triple Z. Ball. You can find KM Hirosaki's Otter Ramblings at KM Hirosaki, H-I-R-O-S-A-K-I. On Fur Affinity? Yes. There's an underscore in there. But if you is just it, go to... There, there's an underscore in the username. It's not between the hero and the Saki, right? No, it's between the KM. <laughs> <laughs> if you actually just type in the URL, like, slash user, slash KM Hirosaki, it's all one word. But my username has a underscore in it. Right. And yeah. I'm just Kyle on Fur Affinity. And we are all on Twitter under those same names, except that mine is Kyle Gold. Uh-huh. Send us mail at unsheathedpodcast at gmail.com. If you would like us, we don't promise that we'll do another editing show, but this one was kind of fun, so yeah. we might consider it. In the future. Uh, always a good mm-hmm. excuse to get our Hacksaw Rat on the phone. Oh, and we have Indeed. a new user icon now. Oh, and we have a user. That was done by courtesy, Cirrus. Courtesy of Cirrus. Yes, was, that's C-I-R-R-U-S. Like the cloud. Yes. <laughs> Who is quite lovely. And Kame Hirosaki looks wonderfully flustered in it. Like, it, eight people called that out it's, across it's all the so different adorable. places it was posted. I was just like, oh my god, is that really where everyone goes to when they look at me? In that picture? Because um, you do. I'm exempt. 
I'm exempt. No, you're and not. I look, and I look scheming. Why do you? Why are you exempt, Foos? Because when I look at that picture, I just go, "Thank God he's not looking at me." <laughs> <laughs> mm. Fair enough. That's it, it's Cam Hirosaki's. Oh, I have no pants on. Look. No, my I have no pants on look is very different. I don't know. It depends who you're looking at. Thank you all for listening. Um, before Kit comes over and... Oh, wait. Should I shill for New Fables? Um, sure. Actually, we could shill for New Fables and Cupcakes real quick. Oh, Kit's sighing. Yeah. All right. Do your, do, do your New Fables shill, and I'll do the cupcakes, and then we will bid everyone a good night. Okay. Everybody has to go out and buy... Uh, New Fables number four from Sofa Wolf Press because I've got the first story in the anthology called War Dog, which is really cool. So you all have to buy it. War Dog is a really cool. It story. It is a very cool story. I like it. A I lot. can vouch for that. Yeah, I can vouch for it too. And our second cupcake came out at Anthrocon by Rikoshi. It's called the Peculiar Quandary of Simon Canopus Artile. Um, in addition to Changes for the Better, which is the second story in it, you should go buy that. And we will have a third cupcake coming out later this year by mm-hmm. our hacksaw Me. rat. Yes. Which is called? The Twelfth Jackie, or alternately, The Dozenth Jackie. I'm still trying to make up my mind. Oh, I think you need Twelfth. Dozenth doesn't scan well. No, that sounds like twelfth. something like out of a Doctor Who title. <laughs> You're laughing because yeah. you know I'm right. Uh, yes. Um, okay, so it'll be the twelfth Jackie, and I, I will just give you. We're, we're still working on the pitch line for it, but I will give you one pitch line, which is or one sentence. What makes you mm. unique when you have one hundred and sixty-seven identical sisters? Mm. That's our. That's uh, rough. That's our one sentence. Mm. Yes, and you did it to her. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. All right. Well, thank you very much, Foos, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, good night, everyone, and keep writing. <laughs>